Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of returning to the stars once again. Here's the thing, they still can't hear you scream out there. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier. This week we are talking about why, you know, why is there no love for FTL 2448? Uh, FTL 2448 is, which is a really long and hard to say game name, but it is a product of TriTac that's had three editions, um, and uh, some of us have every edition uh, of it. Uh, the latest one came out around 1993 in a yeah. two book edition. You know, at the time was massive. I mean, literally, this the cover art spanned both books. So you put them side by side. You had a, this huge panoramic picture of looking out at a space station to all these ships in space around a space station. And it was utterly cool. I, I really liked that cover thing. But uh, the, the sad thing was is that um, you know, lot, lots of game stores didn't get the message. Okay, and so what would happen is that people went and bought the first book and never bought the other two, the other one. Yeah, and so they got literally half a game, uh, and they missed most of the uh, really detailed information about the game world, which was a big which was a big problem at the time. Now, of course, these days it's not uh, it's not such a big issue because everybody prints on PDF. Uh, and therefore, they can be 400 pages and nobody's going to bat an eye. Something else about ships, and you bring it down here, uh, point eight. Yes, again, folks, we have another patented Bruce Shepard outline here. It's Resolve Origin, the gravity plates, and also better drive systems if, you know, gravity other than phase space, because they did the phase, the phase drive. Oh, God, I'm blank. It's a French name. There's a theoretical warp drive. Alcubierre, I think is the name of it. Alcubierre or something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could put that in now as the new extrapolatory faster-than-light drive that, that you could use. Because I'm sure phase drive is what all of the, you know, John and Flash Jervis and Chris Biting and all the other people in the technical um advice uh, consultants for this game, that's what they could extrapolate on back in the late 80s, early 90s. The Alcubierre drive has been made since then. You could put that in as the new, oh, this is what we'll be using in 500 years because it's extrapolated from now current science. The Starship Construction Manual she got me was from a game system called WOIN, and it's the Starship Construction Manual. Okay. And she got me this in 2019. So, you know. It's for their game system, W-O-I-N. I, okay. I can, I can look it up, you know. But uh, I, was, I was impressed by it. Does Starship Combat even work? I don't know. 
We never did it. One of the things I never quite understood in the game was how do the other PCs, who are part of the bridge crew, a lot of them, how does their activities help you successfully do combat, you know, between ships? Because, you know, obviously you need the navigator and the phase drive guy and all that and stuff like that to go and get you from one star system to another. Somebody is going to be, uh, you know, in charge of the sensors. You know, somebody's making the command decisions. Somebody's got to be allocating energy, you know, from... Oh, yeah. You know, you know, to, to help you avoid things because most of the weaponry, the starship weaponry, even though they did massive amounts of damage, they were still pretty normal, you know, what you'd expect, okay? You know, and this is where they break from Babylon 5 and the white stars and stuff like that. They had lasers. Uh, they had pulse lasers. They had missiles. They had canister bombs, which, which I thought were interesting, but this is kind of like one of those you know, strategic kind of things where, you know, it's a it's a like a little spaceship that goes and flies over to where your enemy is and then explodes, you know, uh, uh, sending like grape shot into your enemies at, at uh, not relativistic velocities, but certainly, you know, highly kinetic difference velocities because you're accelerating the whole way there before you explode. So yeah. I'm just saying is that, you know, it, it's uh, rather than having, any, you know, it's, you're talking about your, you know, your your solid mass objects versus exploding objects versus burning through things, you know, with uh, pulse lasers and stuff like that. So uh, they didn't have anything like, you know, miniature black holes. That's that's the only thing that readily comes to mind. Super science kind of thing. One of the things they did not have, and I really was surprised about it. Uh, was they did not have any form of teleportation. I, I can't recall ever them doing that. And I always expected that some of the really high-level guys like the Krovin or the Fritzians would have the ability to have their ships teleport. Oh, no, they, they used uh, solar sails. Yeah, they yeah they flew around. Well, the Fritzians had solar sail ships that traveled faster than than uh, you know uh, uh, nuclear drive the ships. Phase drive. Yeah, well, not yeah. phase drive. No, no, those were those were these were in stellar. These were inside this. You know, they mentioned about interstellar spaces, but the the speed in which they traveled was you know. I'm just saying is that they, they but nobody had. You know, the, the closest thing we had to teleportation was phase space. So, but nobody ever had the ability to literally jump from one ship to another by some form of teleportation. And I was always surprised about that. I mean, if they wanted to keep it that way, one of the things that they could have done is they could have uh, created bots on the other ship, you know, telepresence where literally somebody would just put on his helmet or whatever, you know, with the goggles, and they would inhabit a robotic form on the other ship. They could then go and talk to the people on the other side, you know, and, um, you know, negotiate with them and stuff, especially when you had these situations where one ship had vastly different um, ecological systems than the other. You know, rather than some poor person having to put on an armored spacesuit and travel actually from one ship to another so they could be in the same room as this alien, these, these aliens, to do whatever it is that they're going to do, that to me would have made a lot more sense. 
And you know they and then of course if with your hackers of course you go and try to take over the other person's bots and then use them as a strike force against the other ship if you're trying to attack them. So just something that they could have done in the tech level that they had that Richard never thought about doing. You know, or you know, you, if you thought about it, you just decide not to do it. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I read some other uh, technical advice there. Uh, Bill Waldrop was another one that was involved with that. And he's an engineer. And so, yes, he is. I, I'm sure that if that it came to mind, they would have, yeah, I think it would have been just Rich be like, nah. Richard, you know, it's, it's funny because even though his games have so much death dealing in it, Richard was such a, a, a gentle soul. That yeah. you know, he always wanted to give you experience for being nice to people. Yeah, and only for being nice to people. Well, I mean, you got less experience if it resorted to combat. He wanted your, the players to think their way out more than fight their way out. Right, right. But so you know, but I'm just saying that this to me would have made sense. But getting back to your, your uh, about the uh, gravity plates, the gravity plates are a really big weirdness in this game because. It's something that's incredibly high tech, way too high tech for this setting. Do you, you you understand that, right? Yeah, yeah. The only and the only way I could try to figure out about gravity plates and try to make it as scientifically extrapolatorily scientifically sound as possible is magnetic boots. Right. Well, like they used in uh, uh, in the Expanse. Yeah, I never saw that, but yeah, yeah, those type of things, because just generating gravity, unless you're doing the artificial gravity through, you know, centrifugal force rotation, like how space stations do it, yeah, like on a starship, yeah, unless it was incredibly high tech, you'd have to just use magnetic boots and chunk, chunk. you wouldn't be moving very fast. Yeah, so it is incredibly high tech, okay, yeah. and that's and that's a problem, Okay, you know, because it, it raises the question, well, where did this come from? Where does this tech come from? So I figured it had to come from the Fritzians or the Kralvins. And it's one of those things that's so high level that all they can do is sell it to, because yeah. uh, they can't be reproduced by anybody locally. Yeah. Because what you would have is, is that uh, you would have, you know, like four Gs, in one person's room, you'd have half a G in another person's room. And then, you know, so these plates were all over the place and changing the gravity all over the place. And I know in, in a couple of games we ran, we actually used the gravity plates as a means of stopping boarding because people would come over and you just thump, you just hit them with like five Gs. And they were like on the ground and they couldn't get up. Okay, so that, that was, you know, one of the methods of protecting yourself. But I went and I asked Richard, okay, I, I, uh, I, at the time, uh, and I said, Richard, the, these gravity plates, they are like producing massive amounts of gravity. And, you know, you've got this phase drive that, you know, if you sneeze at it, it basically detunes and 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 becomes inefficient and sometimes uh, yeah. breaks. Okay, how does all this stuff, you know, react with the phase drive? And he said, "Oh, it's bad for it. It automatically, you know, it, you know, these things 
This is why you have to get these things uh, retuned so often. That's why it's, it's a really good idea for your engineer to have at least some skill in tuning phase drives because they go out of tune, you know, because these gravity plates. And I said, well, that's, that's interesting. That's not in the book anywhere, is it? He said, no. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Yeah, so here here's a, a, a you know a situation where high tech a really high tech device affects the other systems on a spaceship and nobody really realized that they were just acting like it was magic just like Star Trek the inertial dampers yeah okay which is amazingly high tech okay even for Star Trek all right you know because when they fail of course that's when everyone goes throwing around the room and stuff you know yeah but. Uh, uh, so what I told Richard at the time, I said, "Well, wait a second, okay, you know, I've been what I've been thinking about this for, you know, of course." And I said, "What if gravity on the ship, okay, primarily came from the phase drive?" Because this thing is essentially creating a Einstein whatever bridge. It's creating a wormhole or it's linking you into phase space. Okay? So it's it's basically manipulating reality, which is what, you know, which, and, and when you do that, you basically create gravity. So it makes sense to me that the phase drive would create a plane of gravity. You know, it'd be like, it either, everything, either the front of the ship is up and everything down to the bottom of the ship is down, or you can rotate it so it goes through the middle of the ship and half the ship is up and half the ship is down. So, you know, right along the midline, you got people literally standing upside down to each other. You know, and you could like talk to, you know, port, you know holes in the floor with, with, with uh, uh, ladders going, hey, Charlie, you can see Charlie looking at you head to head, you know. <laughs> upside down from each other. He thought that was a great idea, by the way. He, you know, he said that that would be really fun to do. You know, and uh, but of course he never brought out a new edition of FTL, so uh, I, I my idea never got to see print. I thought that would be cool, you know, to do that. It, instead and, and yes, you can have gravity plates, okay, but they would be for the exceptional situations. And you wouldn't be having like a massive, you know, every, every Every 10 feet, having another gravity plate, you know, activated to provide gravity for each of the floors. So that all the, you know, you see what I'm saying here? Yeah. Because otherwise you end up with just a ton of gravity plates in any spaceship you have. You know, especially like something the size of the Kansas, you know, which was ginormous. That was one of my my ideas that he liked. And so I would like them to... Uh, I don't know, just just better deal with that because John Ryer, bless his heart, you know, when we talked about this, he said, you know, Bruce, if you have gravity plates, that means you have the ability to control gravity. And if you have the ability to control gravity, that means you have gravity drives. That means you basically have all control over time and space. And you know from looking at the tech levels that gravity drive is at the very top of the tech levels. Yeah, that's that's you control the fundamental force of everything. Right, which yeah. is way way too high for you know uh, for FTL twenty four forty eight. You know, outside of a few you know as you said elder races like the Fritzians and the Krelvins. So yeah, 
Anyway, so that was one of my things about, you know, so I, I would like them to talk about the origin of the gravity plates. Also, you know, and I think they do talk about the, the creation of the phase drive because humanity had to create that themselves. Otherwise, they never would have met with anybody. What was the Brazilian dict Oximano was the, yeah, the guy that first the Brazilian space force went up and ships disappeared and others and even though a lot of ships were lost, that got the rest of humanity going, you know, he has an idea. Maybe if we fix, oh, yeah, here's all the mistakes he made. Let's clean those up and try again. Yeah. Going back to the uh, uh, the, the weaponry, uh, I have said this on every single version of every single game that Richard's ever produced using his, his, his universal system. Missiles are simply bad on their maximum range. You know... Uh, Unless you have a three and a half inch wide missile, okay, which gives it like less than a mile range, okay, they have like five hundred foot ranges, you know, and and uh, five hundred foot ranges and maybe a thousand, but I mean, it's just like to me, missiles need to be able to go further than that. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you were playing, you know, uh, Ultra Force or Mega Force. You know, the movie where they had missile pods on bikes. Okay. Those, yeah. you know, you know, those I could see only having like a 500 foot range because they're basically, you know, just firing down range of where they're going, blowing things up to get it out of their way. Okay. But anything that out, that has real missiles like jets or, you know, other things like that, those missiles, they can fly quite some distance. Okay. And also in space with these starships, you don't have to deal with gravity. You just, that thing could, until the missile runs out of fuel, and even then, it'll just keep going in that direction forever. Yeah. Right. Until yeah. it hits something. And, you know, na navigational, you know, uh, once it runs out of navigational fuel, then you got a problem. Right. Yeah. So I'm just saying that was, you know, he, he basically cut and pasted that in from earlier systems. But I've always said that I thought that missiles in particular were just a little too weak as far as their ranges was concerned. I was fine with the damages and stuff like that, but the ranges needed to be popped up a bit and you know and and he's never you know i i've never seen any evidence you know any specs that said okay this is based on this and therefore it is accurate maybe it is maybe i don't know what i'm talking about i'd like if someone out there does know you know is familiar with the tritech system and under and and you know agrees that the missile pods and things like that have the right ranges for them please let us know because um i always thought they were definitely light on that ability so uh but that's that's one of the things i would like them to fix in the next edition okay and we talked about beanstalks but there's also lots of other mega structures you know like i said the the, the orbital colonies but other yeah. things they, there's no mention of these kind of things in ftl and i would love for there to be a lot more of these things you know yeah i mean um i'm trying to remember what what um I think it was in Star Wars. There was a gigantic monster, you know, a, a creature that was the si size of a moon. And all that was left was a skull. And other races had come in and basically had built, you know, <laughs> turned it into a habitat. Okay, and so there's this giant head floating in space, you know, in orbit. So 
That kind of reminds me of Guardians of the Galaxy with nowhere. You know, that is probably what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm just that's saying. That's what I can think of. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the sort of cool stuff that, you know, that would be great to add. Or or what was the other one on Farscape? It was the corpse of a Budong, which is like a giant space dragon. And so they were mining out various things of the Budong. Yeah. Because we have objects, you know, there's this one thing that's still in our solar system, saw its way out, but it's like a thousand miles long and it's cylindrical. You know, it's... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Start, yeah. You know, and I was just saying is that, you know, there's, there are... You know, and, of course, there was a recent movie where they said the entire inside of the moon was actually a, a megastructure. The moon was not, in fact, our moon. It was actually this thing to be placed into orbit to protect us. <laughs> so... No, what was... I think the rules for what constitutes a megastructure, with air quotes... It has to be five kilometers long in one dimension. I've never heard that, but okay. Yeah, I, I, I looked it up because I wanted to see about megastructures. Technically, the Great Wall of China would be considered a megastructure because it's more than five kilometers long. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so things like, yeah, Babylon 5 would be a megastructure. Absolutely. Yeah. That was a so, huge thing. Well, obviously, Ring World. Yeah, like they did in uh, Book of Boba Fett with that, that Halo-like ring. and Halo. Halo is, a, is another, another you know, um, ring world kind of thing, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and, and frankly, the Death Star. Yeah, well, yeah. That's... Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the resources required to build such a thing, you know, it's... it's I, I, I just admit, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that he was the emperor of the entire galaxy, never would have gotten the second one made. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's kind of like they shot it with a, you know, a TIE fighter, or, you know, an X-Wing. X-Wing just came in and blew it up. And you spent how, you know, the, the economy of how many worlds building it? Oh, no, no. You know the number of star systems that were, their, the resources that were plundered from not only like the planets, but moons, asteroid belts, to get all the resources to make something, not one, but two Death Stars. Right. Yeah. No, just... Yeah, and you see, that that in itself, the story of building that those kinds of megastructures, okay, those are interesting stories. Those have all kinds of story hooks. That's the kind of thing that would be interesting to put into a game. And now I'm reminded of the line from Clerks that Randall having the discussion with Dante about the Death Star. It's like, the Empire wouldn't have had their own people. They outsourced independent contractors. So that means these guys are on the Death Star working, and all of a sudden some farm boy comes up. What do you got to say to their families now? Oh, I was on a project. I got killed by some farm boy. The next week. <laughs> this, whole, this whole rant that Randall goes on and Dante's just behind the counter, of course, thinking the line, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why am I here now? I don't. I right. Don't, yeah. yeah. I could be home. Yeah. No, but um, I, I think that more things like that could have been done. And I'm, and we're, I'm not even talking, you know, the Fritzians, the Krelvins, the other, oh God, the Akiti and the Mosby, the two lost races that were like fighting against each other. And like, they were either setting their, enemy stars Nova are doing bioengineered plagues against each other. Mm -hmm. ISCO could have made something like this. They could have had like some massive 
I think FOMO Hot was probably the biggest thing akin to a mega structure. Because you know that station had to be a few kilometers long if it was that much. I agree. That's what that was my yeah. point is that it just, yeah. you get no sense of scale on that thing, but you knew it had yeah. to be massive. Yeah. It, it might not have been a mega structure, but it was darn, it was definitely yep. The, the, yep. The, the size of a moon. You know, Phobos or uh, Demnos on, on, uh, on Mars. Yeah. They had a little bit of it, but I think that they really needed a, a really big, you know, for every campaign model that they were talking about in the book, they really, you know, and, and maybe a, a generalized thing first, they needed to basically set up some some tutorials about how to make interesting fetch quests. Because obviously, you know, when you know you have your overarching campaign model, but unless you're literally doing a military thing, most you know, most video games and other things like that, they have fetch quests. They have basically side quests for you to do. Whether it be, you know, um, uh, and, and I, I'm using the word fetch quest, but I also mean take the princess, you know, uh, to this location. You know, go get this. That's a fetch quest. Uh, yep. Guard this convoy. Um, you know, uh, and of course, trade. You know, go this place and buy and sell. And and that's a, uh, and that's where, you know, I, I think that that was something they didn't have in it to really help the fledgling. GM to say, okay, we got this big, huge galaxy full of planets, which are almost none of them are identified. Okay, and you know, how do I set up a triangle trade? How you know what what kinds of 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 things would be you know if I decide I want to send somebody you know to go get a sending somebody to go get an object is easy because you know it's important. And they're willing to pay for you to go and do that. And you don't have to deal with the economics of the system and stuff like that. It's just that's important enough for someone to pay you to go do it. So you go do it. And then, of course, the GM can add in complications, which is one reason why fetch quests are great, because they ignore all these other things that we've been talking about, like military you know, uh, alliances. It doesn't, you know, they don't care about your, uh, you know, whether you know, the politics of the area, the economics of the area, you just have to go get the object. and and Or you just have to carry the princess from one location to another. Now, these other factors might come in and make it harder or easier to do, okay? Yeah. But, you know, I'm just saying, fest quests are great in a role-playing game, especially a space game or a game that involves exploration because... People have a goal, have a, an immediate goal to take care of that may or may not support the overarching goal that they're trying to follow. So, to me, it's really important to do that because it just otherwise it's um, you know people get bogged down. Players lose the ability to figure out how to go from you know uh, A to B because there's like 15 steps in between them they have to do. So. You know, making it, you know, that's why when I designed my own uh, uh, campaign, my little campaign for uh, Hardwire Hinterland, it was all about building this, uh, basically a, a high-tech space fighter, 
okay, that, that the players could then use for the rest of their campaign. But it all included going to this location, getting this. It was basically just a ton of fetch quests. And once yeah. they did all that, they could then put it all. They had this robot that had basically been following them the entire time. Okay, you know, it was a little floating eyeball with an arm. And it, it didn't seem to do anything except hide whatever combat happened. But it was always with them and never got away from the book that they were following. And, you know, and at the end of it, when they had everything, all of a sudden they get busy. And it starts putting things together, and finally they end up with what they, you know, what, what the whole goal was. But up till then, they they may or may not have figured out what it was for. It's not a bad campaign model to have these fetch quests to be part of it to add interest to reveal information. So having a good section in the book about how to do it, I think, would be really really helpful, even in this modern day and age. I think that the way that you said it as you know oh how you have it in video games and all that video remember video games are not as enhanced as they are now back 25 years ago i think that that mindset of playing the video games and having those types of quests wasn't prevalent when they made the books back then that could be why they didn't kind of go that route again also in the 90s you still had a lot of the main people and we have nothing against, you know, that generation of game masters and game designers. It's just they they figured out games differently than we do now. They had less resources to draw templates from, I guess, would be the best example of what I'm trying to say. And so they they just a lot of times it's, oh, you you just learn how to do it after a while. And, you know, through making mistakes in the game, eventually you'll learn having a tutorial like that, how to do those fetch quests, as you call them, would be nice, especially in this setting. Yeah, and literally can be used in any setting. I mean, any kind of campaign. You know, yeah, yeah. People, people make fun of it. You know, oh, it's just another fetch quest. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a vehicle that allows the GM to, first of all, let the players do something that give, gives them a feeling of success and competence. And secondly, it gives the, the GM an opportunity to reveal information to the players that will be helpful in completing the overarching campaign uh, Well, yeah, goals. it gives you setting information because this side quest, oh, you find out about this one planet that, you know, you had to go to. Oh, and you also find out that this planet has, you know, these things about it and just information to help strengthen the fullness of the campaign to, to give you just a little more agency in the knowledge of what is all involved with this. So yeah, it just, even if it doesn't help the quest, the, the overarching quest as a whole, it still fills in the gaps in the setting that people might've wondered, well, what are some of the things that are in this campaign campaign setting? Oh, it has a planet that has this, this, and this. Yeah. We went there to pick up this one type of ore or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I the yeah definitely a how-to for flash quests that would be oh wait a minute helpful. Obviously, I'm going to agree because it was my idea. <laughs> oh yeah, but I mean, I'm 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 walking through how to figure it out and yeah, two paths, same destination. Come on. Yeah, I agree with you because yeah, again, in the book there is you know literally pages about how to and I and and I created a set of utilities back in the day that allowed me to actually go and. Uh, 
using these same charts, create worlds, create animals, create all kinds of things. All those things just, just beg to be uh, uh, computerized. So, uh, assuming a court, you know, and you don't have to have you don't have to have the tri-tax system to use these kinds of charts. I mean, they're literally roll a D one hundred. Okay, his body is oblong. Roll another D one hundred. He's got eight legs. Roll another D one hundred. Okay, it's it's it, the world it's on has one point six gravity. You know, this is its lifespan. This is this is how many genders it has. I mean, these were oh, all yeah, these were all randomly generated. You know. Yeah, there. I remember those charts in like Fringeworthy OGL, and I think it was also in the Fringeworthy '92 edition. Yeah, for like generating alien life. Yeah, right. Yeah, and because FTL came last, it basically got all the charts from all the other books. So yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, it's you know, which is not a, a bad thing because you know it's you know that when you do that, you have an opportunity to correct any mistakes you might have made. And speaking of which, this is a total aside. Okay. You know, I always think it's funny because every uh, every so often you go and say, "Here I've been get you know uh, playing TriTag games for 30, 40, whatever you know, thirty years, and I just learned something new, or I learned something I didn't know." All right. When I was looking through this book, okay, I got to the shotgun section. They had under the easy rules says, "Well, you're using this gu this shotgun, and it does." you know, like 60, 10 damage. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, but 60, 10 damage over what? Because, I mean, if you're using a slug, obviously it's just going to go to one area, all right, of uh, the body area, because yeah. everything was a six by six grid. He says, you know, what, how many areas am I supposed to be using, you know, uh, applying this to, okay? And right next to the, the number of dice, there was a letter, and the letter referred to another chart that was on the other side of the divider of the page that basically said, A, one area. B, two areas. C, three areas. So if you fired a shotgun at a particular range and it did X number of dice with C after it, that meant you're supposed to take the total damage and divide it by those three areas. And so, which meant that if someone was wearing armor, the armor would apply to each of those areas. So it's, so instead of you taking 60 points of damage, you might only take, you know, if each one had had uh, 10 points of, of damage resistance, then you'd only take 30 points of damage, 30. which was yeah. survivable for most yeah. characters. Most characters didn't have 60 points, uh, hit, hit points, but they did have 30. And, and I'm like, well, I, Okay, have I like totally forgotten this? I don't remember ever seeing this before. This is exactly what I've always wondered about. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why every one of my characters that I've ever done in a tri-tag tri game is all when they use shotguns, always use solid uh, solid slugs because that way I didn't have to figure. Because I would do it the hard yeah. way. I would do the okay, it hits this location. Now I roll a d6 to see where the next pellet goes. Okay, I'm gonna roll the damage <laughs> oh, for the next pellet. You know, no. and, and some of them like would do d6 pellets. You know, so you might get four. You have to do this four times, you know, each area. And if it hit in the same oh, area, then, of course, you know, you're doubling up on the damage that, that the armor has already been ruined. So that goes straight through. And I'm like, man, this is too much work. Because all I had to do was just 
look at that chart and say, oh, you just divided by two, you just divided by three, or you just divided by five in the case of like buckshot at a long range. So yeah. if you're wearing armor, basically it doesn't it doesn't hurt you. But if you're if you were standing there with no armor on, then yeah, it would hurt like the Dickens. You know, it could even kill you at that range. Here I am, having played these stupid games for since ni- <laughs> 1980, and I, I, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I just learned something I, I or that I had forgotten or I never knew. So there you are. You're not the only one, Trav. Okay. All right. Oh, let's see what else here. Um... Is that good or bad news for you, Jonathan? Oh, that's pretty good because now you know. I know even even the master can be forgetful or yeah. uneducated, yeah, yeah, or mistaken. So it's, it also goes to show that there's so many Easter eggs of of of, of knowledge in Richard's games. That, yeah, you know, it, it's uh, you know. It, I remember when I first learned to, when I first played D anD D. I read every one of the books. At which point there were only three. Four, right. four, well, let's discount the deities book. There were three. I read them three times all the way through before I actually ever tried to run a game, you know, uh, and uh, or even play a game. Uh, even now, you know, you you re- you read stuff in his books and uh, Richard's stuff, and he's, something will come out and surprise you. So, and I and, and I love that about him. You know, on one hand, he would keep stuff hidden that I thought shouldn't be hidden. You know, on the other hand, is that some of it he just put out in uh, in plain sight for the dis- discerning G- GM or player to discover. So, you know, thank you, Richard, for keeping it uh, fresh. I miss you, buddy. Oh yeah. <sighs> Anyways, okay, so I'm I'm done with my list. You guys got more? Okay, as I I mentioned this pre taping as we call it um the star charts in ftl which a lot of them were accentuated and gone through in the second book they used a star charting system a star classification system based on an astronomer i want to say he was in the 50s with the last name of glisa g-l-i-e-s-e And you can look up stars today and they will still have the Gleese numbers. Like, oh, Gleese 480, oh, it's known by this star's name. And you could, I, because when I did my FTL campaign, I had to plot where the stars were. I mean, they have star charts for hundreds of light years and it's multi-layered. It is a three-dimensional star map of the local ISCO systems in the second book for ftl the one problem is and this won't bother 99.9 percent of the people because oh there's at least a star map based on real stars great wonderful fantastic and bruce and i were talking about this once off earth telescopes excuse me such as the hubble and now the new James Webb telescope have come out. We have found out new facts about other celestial bodies because we didn't have to deal with such things as, oh, 
atmospheric refraction because we had them on Earth and we the the atmosphere diffracted the views of stuff. Once we got orbital telescopes, you know, even with Hubble, which that's why now we have the James Webb because the Hubble finally is, well, I hate to say it, dying. And basically the Gliese charts are somewhat incorrect now because we have found out new measurements, new positions. Oh, it's not there. It's actually three light years, you know, to the left. And it's not a nitpicking thing, but cleaning it up would be nice because you're going to get, and usually it's in my game, you're going to get that one astronomy geek that, oh, no, actually the Glee system is about 40 years out of date. It's now this, this, and this. And you're just glaring at them over the screen, giving that look like, I'm smiling, but in my head, I've killed you four times already. We here at Gaming in the Frontier Podcast do not condone violence against your players in any way, shape, or form. But just to, if we're going to update, because remember, these were extrapolated on science that was found out back before the 92 edition was. If it was to be done, update it to new mod. I mean, the hex, the multi-layered hexes within hexes system that Rich did, or Rich had done, it's fantastic. It's a very detailed, and each hex in the map is one light year. Because there are no systems within one light year. There's more. Than, our nearest system is four and a half light years away, Alpha Centauri. So each hex was one light year. And so, and I forget how many of the hexes were in a local hex, and it was like, five layers and like 30 hexes across and it was a hex and just yeah but clean up the glee system just that because you're going to get that one astronomy geek in your campaign or somebody who knows about physics like i had jerry gentry and he would call me on stuff and i'm just looking at him um yeah maybe find update the astronomical systems a little bit since this game is so prevalent on the fact that it was based off a of hard science update the hard science everything else that 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 we've covered bruce covered and as soon as i i looked over the outline i said the damn glee system get that up to get that up to speed <laughs> because your your game game masters you're going to have that one person Who's going to call you on your stuff? Either because you just didn't research it or it's not something you know. And astronomy, there, there's the astronomy geeks out there. They'll get you. So that's my only thing I thought that. And even John mentioned it back in the day that the Gleese system is now somewhat outdated. So, yeah, that's my only thing that I would really say for this. Just, yeah, other than that, all the other stuff we suggested, well, that too. But, I mean, you know, that that's my little bit of gas I'm throwing on the fire here. Jonathan, <laughs> is there anything that you might see that would update? I, as again, the specifics, you're not- the specifics are not so much, but I, 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 as we talked, I, I kind of got a, a realization about what I would want. Um, okay. and that's, um, first off, let me go on a slight, uh, tangent, but we'll circle back around and it'll make sense. Uh, do you guys remember the, the, the PC game spore? might have heard i do my son loved playing it yeah it was it Ah. was by maxis it was basically a 
evolution simulator? Yes. Oh, okay. Nice way to put it. Um, but yeah, you created your own little, you, you started at the like cellular stage and you would evolve your creature up to a, a, a land creature and then you would evolve them up into, you know, tribal stage and city stage and space stage. And while that was happening, there would be other creatures that would come in, you know, that would come in into conflict with it, that, this, that the system was automatically created for you. Well, Why does it sound like civilization on crack? Why does it sound like civilization on crack? Not so much yeah. on crack. It was, it, was, it was similar in some ways, but it was also very simplified compared to civilization. It was focused more... The, biggest, the reason it was called Spore was because it was about taking other people's creations and spreading them out across the network like spores. And so any creature you created would randomly show up in someone else's game as long as they were connected to the internet. Oh, okay. And so you, and you could see your own creations in in other games, you know, every so often, man. And it would be, you know, have your name attached to it. So people could it. So that was the big gimmick of this game. But what I remember was when they were uh, first released the demo, which was just the creature creation stage, because you could also just start at any stage you wanted. And you could so you could go ahead and start by creating a creature, and that that was their demo was that portion of the game. I used the fringeworthy uh, rules for creating alien uh, species to just create a whole bunch of random spore creatures. Just for oh fun. okay cool because it I mean that that those rules had everything I needed to create just random creatures and spore It'd give you the general shape the you know how they move their locomotion and diet and all that kind of stuff okay i think that was was that book one let me look real quick i think well and and fringeworthy was you know the 92 edition was what i had at the time yeah yeah and so they 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 did copy and paste that with ftl so i mean there is i think i think it's book two yeah yeah um the reason i bring that up is that this got me thinking now coming all back around to the main topic from from what we've talked about, I realized that I would want to use this setting and, and systems to play, to create random star empires in my current obsession, Stellaris, where it, it is basically civilization in space. It's a you know standard 4X space game, but it's got so many options. It's it's almost sandboxy when you when you want it to be sandboxy, or you can just play it as a Civ game. But I would want if if we could get this game, if we could get the setting and like the alien races, get them all condensed and, and everything together so that it's uh, pick an alien race, I can have all the details I need to create an empire in Stellaris and play as that alien race. So I don't have to spread across and look through you know this section and this section and this section yeah give me three or four pages on each alien race that i can read to get a basic idea of you know okay what kind of alien race is it is it you know fungoid humanoid you know mammalian reptilian you know what is their general economy like what is their general outlook you know that kind of thing that would probably be what i wanted just that's yeah basically better 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 racial character creation, yeah. Either or, or, you or, or, or just play. or just the ones that are already uh, created and in, in the setting. Just getting it where I can get a good idea of how this race works. But then, yeah, if you also can create your own and getting all the, you know, a, a streamlined 
alien race creation system as well. Because I know Fringeworthy okay. has it as well, uh, the, not just the, the alien species, but also the culture. Yeah, well, that's, that's all there, too. You know, mostly that sort of thing is handled on a per-planet basis, not an entire, an entire empire. You know, it's like, is this planet, you know, uh, are, are, are they developing or are they, 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 they retreating? Are they, you know, is this stagnant? You know, what is their basis? What is their primary basis? Because you know, it always, unfortunately, science fiction always assumes that a planet's a monoculture and they only do one thing. So, yeah, you, know, planet, you know, yeah. so there's an agricultural planet, really. You know, it's, it's, yeah. You know, no one's no one's trying to mine anything off this planet, you know, or or you know, of course the mining was like, well, it's an asteroid belt and they're all mining it. This is okay, fine, but it doesn't mean they're not growing stuff too, you know. Maybe there's Yeah, I get the food from somewhere. Maybe there's some maybe yeah. there's some food stuffs that only grow in zero G. You know, it's there there's a lot of things you can do. That's where a, a lot of times random generators are great because they'll throw together things that you yourself would never throw together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it has to be in such a way that you could just say, no, nah, that doesn't work and toss it away and hit the hit the randomizer again to see what mm -hmm. the next one does. You know, just like when you create PCs, you know. It's just like you know, just keep hitting that button till you see something that gels. Yeah, that's about the only thing I'd say. Is like if 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 it could be streamlined uh, enough that I could just say, "Hmm, I think I want to play a, a Krelvin Empire this this game." Let me find the rules. Let me find the the stats on them real quick and look it up and see how I could create that in Stellaris. Because that's been my obsession lately: is taking so more pop culture. more. more geopolitical type stuff well, is what you're saying not necessarily has to be but it just being able to find it easily but yeah also maybe having a little bit of just a, a description of you know how they interact with the, the universe at large that's usually a good thing because that's one of the big things of course in in solaris is how do how do are they militarist are they spiritualist are they xenophiles are they xenophobes and what percentage yeah they hinted yeah, at that in bits in, in yeah. FTL. Hinted at bits. It's like they did mention something the uh, Fritzians did. Um, apparently the Grex, the five foot tall fox people who plants are taking over the world that they're on. Um, originally, that's not their world. The, the Grex were like militaristic conquerors, you know, like, you know, they put the Klingons and the Romulans to shame. And then the Fritzians basically slapped them down four or five pegs. No, you're on this world. The one that would later, the plant life would all be trying to destroy them. <laughs> so, and to this day, the Fritzians are, you know, they'll look at a Grex and be like, it, it's a massive issue of the sons are paying for the sins of the father in the Fritzians' eyes. But they don't tell just what all the Grex did. It's just, yeah, they were getting a little too smart for their shorts and the Fritzians had to knock them down. That they just hinted at it and that's it. They didn't get into it. That would be the rich history I would want. Yeah, more yeah, stuff of like the that, geopolitical yeah. as far as history to give you a better background of, yeah, this particular culture's like this because of this race and what they did. And it gives yeah, you an they, idea of, they, of how they'll develop into the future because, okay, well, they've had this, this his, history of doing this. Well, what if something major changes in their culture? What if, like in the case, like you pulling from Star Trek, what if their home planet just gets blown up? Yeah. 
Well, the thing is, yeah, with like the Grex, what they did is, oh no, ISCO is there. They're basically there with probably about, you know, starships full of cargo holds with nothing but Roundup, you know, or what, you know, yeah. Yes, we know Roundup is no longer used, but you get what I mean. Massive defoliants where just, you know, and Grex are just leaving the planet in droves because they're like, yeah, our planet's ecosystem's trying to kill us. Oh, you want to help us? Yeah, we will gladly be your new medics because I guess um, life sciences are the the bread and butter of the Grex. So, yeah, they're leaving now. They're mass exodus from their world, a diaspora. Well, yeah, I guess it would be a diaspora because usually mm-hmm. that's of a that's caused by a, some violent event. Yeah. And, you know, genocide by plant life would probably be a good one. So, yeah, stuff about like the Grex diaspora due to their ecosystem, the fauna trying to, you know, kill them. That would be good. And, yeah, it, it it's. There's a few races that are wandering in FTL. I want to say, not the Sandroll. Those are like the Vesh. The Vesh. Thank you. Yeah, the ones that can just rip off an arm and plug on another biomechanical um, attachment, and it works just fine. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're basically like Mister Potato Head. Yeah. <laughs> and now all I hear is Don Rickles. Um, what are you looking at, you hockey puck? Yeah. Um, yeah, so they... Bless his heart. Oh, yes, yeah. I miss him. Yeah, so, yeah, Jonathan, yeah, I think more geopolitical, longitudinal stuff would be good, too, because it was just piecemeal throughout, and I think we could just chalk that up again to Rich putting something 50 pages back or 100 pages ahead even though you're looking for it on page 150, it could be on yeah. 225. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you, it, it, you don't, I mean, you don't have to go into extreme depth unless, you know, there's a particular race that really, you know, needs that depth, but yeah, just, you know, a page of stats and then maybe a page of, of, I guess for lack of a better term, anthropological data. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was Rich's thing. Try to give you, a one page story on this race. And then you're kind of left to figure it out. Some people like a lot. Well, I mean, you could put crunch and fluff on those pages because yeah, you're going to have game stats, but also you're going to have story based stuff. And the story based stuff was always just the one or two paragraphs on those pages. Right. And see this, that's the thing is that, you know, I mean, Richard, every, everybody I ever talked to, you know, these, the, I mean, some people were diehard, you know, playing the tri-tag games like me, okay? But most people are like, we buy the books because Richard has great ideas and we mine them for the ideas. But we don't play his games, <laughs> you know, for whatever their reason might be. You know, just the fact that, you know, they already know another system, you know, or whatever. But, the, you know, the point is, is that if you want people to play the game, you've got to give them, you know, the material they need in order to do so, you know, some kind of cheat sheet, some kind of, you know, uh, guideline, something that, you know, because especially the new players, you know, because uh, they are, you know, and it's one reason why we, we did, and, and you know, I don't want to ring that bell again, but we just, one of the main reasons we did the D20 editions of, of Fringeworthy and Bureau 13 was because we knew there were hundreds of supplements out there 
of all these other games, we said it's about time that we can mine their games for stuff for our game. Because mm. <laughs> it was all in the D20 system. So, yeah. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to do it was because then we could finally put the shoe on the other foot. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us. And, and uh, maybe uh, it'll uh, get you to go out and actually buy this game, even if it's just uh, for you to mine for ideas, because there is... Like I say, there's like 400 pages. Oh, yeah. And this is a lot of stuff. Uh, and it's not expensive. It's, uh, you know, I don't know what it is on uh, drive through RPG. Uh, uh, but it, I'm sure it's not terribly expensive. And, um, you know, you might and you might be able to get both both books in one deal. It's a classic, obviously. Uh, and uh, it's based on uh, a lot of work. And we say it was the third edition. And uh, I haven't seen anything that really tries to cover humanity and space the way, the, as broadly as Richard tried to do. You know, I mean, there's lots of ones out there where it's like, you are part of this corporation, and this corporation is fighting this other corporation in these star systems, and this is the stuff you have to work with. Okay, there's lots of system, there's lots of games out there, space games that are like that. Okay, but there aren't too many that actually are saying, here's the stars around Earth, and this is what could be out there, and here's go out there and, 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 and play in that sandbox. I don't recall there being a whole lot of games like that. Um, now, of course, in the, in the uh, computer world, you've got games like um, oh, um, Oh, uh, Elite Dangerous, which actually allows you to go back to Earth. <laughs> okay. Though you can't really do anything there. You can't talk to anybody. You can't land on Earth. But uh, you can land on the moon, though. And uh, you can land on Pluto. I landed on Charon. But uh, the point is, is that you know, there, none of them really, uh, I mean, you know, embrace it. Unless you, you, you get one of the older games uh, like Stellaris, you know, which has had some updates, and others where there's a very strong storyline, but it's not really designed to be an open sandbox in you know uh, the, the way that Richard tried to the design this to be. Just getting some idea about how you could maybe build one of these kinds of worlds for yourself, one of these campaigns. Uh, the information is there, uh, and if you uh, and it's it's uh, reasonably priced. So we hope that you'll do that. If not, we hope that you enjoyed listening to us and we will have more for you next week, but you'll have to wait until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license no commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.